So I'm the director of a chamber music program, and we coach string quartets throughout the year, and they do concerts. And we've been virtual all year long. But last night, the weather was beautiful in Arlington, and we have a location that is allowing us to set up the quartets outdoors, spaced out all throughout their property. And so all the kids showed up and rehearsed, and we coached them, and it was so... It was so awesome. It was so awesome. It, we just had such a blast. Yay. We were loving every second of it. And the energy of the kids. We've had some kids that have really struggled virtually. And you could see it in their faces. Oh my gosh. It was so great. Yay. How joyful. Yes. And our returning members, you know, we hadn't seen in like a year. <laughs> and they're, they're like more adult now. <laughs> Super trippy. I know. Oh my <laughs> gosh. These kids grow like weeds yes and then the new members who joined this year we had only met them in the computer screen and so that was a crazy experience because you know they walk up and you're like oh you're taller than i expected or you're shorter than i expected or right (laughs) but just to um pick up on their energy in person too very very cool so that was such a joy oh so much fun yeah isn't that a crazy thing like now my perception of people's like appearance is completely shot (laughs) Have you noticed that? Because everyone's wearing a mask. So I started my studio last summer and a lot of these students, I have never seen the bottom half of their face. (laughs) That's right. So it's just amazing to recognize what your brain does to complete a picture. Yes. And how completely different it is when you see them without their masks on. So I have been seeing them in person one at a time, first on my screen porch outside and then one at a time inside my home in the front room with all the doors and windows open masked yep so there's lots of airflow space heaters in the winter we went all winter with them you know coming into my home so i'd only seen them with masks on and there was one week where we had a virtual lesson because there was a snowstorm and so i saw these guys on video for the first time (laughs) like actually you could see them smiling and you know, what the bottom half of their face is doing, it is, our brains are clearly, you know, if they don't have enough information, they make crazy distinctions about what someone's face looks like. (laughs) I love that. Welcome to the Viola Centric Podcast. We are two curious violists exploring the art of connection through conversations with each other and our friends. I'm Stephanie Knudsen. And I'm Liz O'Hara Starr. And we're both professional freelance musicians living in the D.C. metro area. There was this what we were talking about, one of our members that were, oh, my gosh, we thought they'd be, you know, a lot taller than they were. And then somebody said, oh, that must be because in Zoom, the camera angles, like, it's such that they seem so much taller. I think that's true. You know what that is? That's the movie star phenomenon. (gasps) Right. You know how like in movies, for example, like Tom Cruise, right? Like he's an action star, right? But you would you would think he's like six feet tall. That guy is only like five four or five <laughs> five. He's shorty. <laughs> he's teeny tiny. <laughs> and you know, you always think like in the, they're on the big screen, but that just goes to show you 
that we have no concept, especially if they cast that person to be the tallest person on the cast. I was just going to say, how do they do that? I, I was just thinking about all the people that Tom Cruise has co-starred with. Are they all really short? They can't all be below five four. I wonder. I think you're right. I actually think he's like five two. <laughs> he's shorty. He's a shorty. And when like photographs of him and Nicole Kidman were taken, was she always taller or would she wear like flats? She's taller than him. She's like, I don't know. You can look it up. She's pretty tall. Let's see. How tall? This is amazing. Nicole Kidman is 5'11". Oh, my God. Tom. Oh, okay. Tom Cruise is only 5'7". Oh, okay. Well. So he's not super duper short, but she's she's above average height and he is kind of below average for a male. Oh, for sure. He's below average for a male. That's like a lot of flats. Yeah. Except, okay, why does the guy have to be tall? Why did, why did it bother me? Oh, yes. I have lots of experience with this. I know where you're going. <laughs> I've always been the tall one. I bet I was gonna say, I bet one of my homecoming dates in high school, he was maybe five six, maybe five seven, but I couldn't wear heels. I remember being like, Oh no, I can't wear heels, but I really liked him and so I wanted to go to homecoming with him and it was fine. Except that I bought these shoes that I like wasn't happy with and I really wanted to wear heels. But why? Why couldn't I just be taller? Yeah. I had the same experience in formal things. And in fact, for my wedding, Aaron and Aaron's like about the same height as me, maybe a tiny bit shorter. I wore flats. Yeah. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Is it for me or is it for him? Maybe both. Yeah, maybe. Ugh. I know it's so gross how deep these things go. It's terrible. Yeah. Ladies, it's okay. We can be taller. Wear the heels. <laughs> wear the heels if you want to wear the heels. If you don't want to wear the heels, don't wear the heels. Yeah, but I mean, if you want to wear heels, girl. Right? Wear heels. Right? Totally. I'm done with that. Mm-hmm. I guess I, I don't I don't really have to think about that, but Matt's 5'10", so I can get away with most things. It's, it's not often you'll see me in a five-plus-inch heel. <laughs> no, that's how you know you're getting old. Like, my feet just will not hang with you know four inch heels anymore well as you've referred to them i love it they're sitting shoes they're sitting shoes yeah that's why they're perfect for concerts yeah you know as long as i have a nice tall chair yes but yeah i just i bring my dress shoes with me i wear my sneakers to the concert hall and i change right before i walk on stage and then i sit down and that's just fine absolutely that's what i do too uh like the, if in the winter time it's uggs and in the summer it's flip flops yeah. <laughs> those are my go to the concert hall shoes <laughs> classy keeping it classy always so i want to hear all about your weekend okay so i went camping with my 11 year old daughter she's a girl scout and so we went over to her troop leader's house and we camped in her backyard, which was great and fine and really, really fun until we actually had to sleep outside. Oh, no. Now, I, <laughs> I brought an air mattress. I had a sleeping bag. You know, my daughter and I, we, we slept on the air mattress in our sleeping bags. But I was not prepared for how cold it would be to sleep outside. I would venture to say it was probably in the like high 30s. Oh my goodness. I slept in my winter coat 
with the hood up and you know socks on everything inside my sleeping bag and I was still freezing okay I have a funny story about air mattresses so air mattresses like they pick up whatever the temperature of the setting they're on Mm. right so like your air mattress must have been freezing cold too right oh yeah I remember this one time I was staying at a friend's house I was on a gig and they're like sure sure crash it's no big deal and we have an air mattress we'll set it up for you and they were in an apartment building that was like a rehabbed warehouse of some kind and the floors were cement Ah. And it was winter time. Mm. And I also, I mean, I had the unfortunate experience of the air mattress taco. You know how like an air mattress will slowly lose its air. (laughs) Before you know it, you're like sleeping in the middle of an air mattress taco. And so I'm on this freezing cold cement and I'm like, this is just like, I would have been better just sleeping in my car at that point. But yeah, that's not pleasant. Yeah, it, it sucked. I just don't know if I'm made for that. You know, <laughs> we didn't camp a lot growing I didn't camp at all. Me neither. Growing up. The only camping I went on was because of Girl Scouts. Mm-hmm. Likewise. Yep. And I don't remember it sucking that bad, but maybe that was because I was eight. Yes, <laughs> I think so. Also, Girl Scout camp always, to me, seemed to be in the summer. That's the thing, too. I don't think I remember like really having to bundle up yeah. to go to sleep. So maybe spring summer camping is more my speed. I like the making of s'mores. I like cooking over the campfire. That's really fun. Sitting by the fire, playing games. But the sleeping was not where it was at for me. I really, really understand. (laughs) I don't like to be cold. And if you're in a position where you can't get warm and then you have to try to sleep, that is no, no thanks. So we're supposed to go camping again this weekend. I'm sending my husband. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) I'm like, your turn. He can handle it. A double camping weekend? Yes. That's hardcore. What are these Girl Scouts doing? I guess the troop leader just wants them to have more experience with camping. Okay. Which I think is good. She's really big on, and I, I really, really admire this, having the girls do everything. Where the parents just sit back and, you know, supervise, make sure nobody catches on fire or, you know... (laughs) I'm with you on the camping. I'm respectful of camping. I love being outdoors. And so I, I like in my in the best version of myself, I would camp all year round. And I wouldn't care about being cold. And I wouldn't care about not having a bathroom. And yeah, I want to be that girl. You know, me too. I really want to be <laughs> low maintenance and whatever situation it is. I'm fine. I'm roll with the punches, you know, kind of person. Yes, me too. But I'm just coming to realize I'm not that girl. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? That's great. It's good to like embrace it. Not all of us need to go be rugged outdoorsy. Yeah, I mean, sleep in the woods. That's what your teens and 20s are for. Like before you know who you really are. <laughs> yes. You try all the crazy stuff. That's right. That's right. Before you settle down, you like date the guy that's like, I'm super into camping. Mm-hmm. My mom, she had a little phase of this in a relationship with somebody and it introduced her to this group of friends. She um, grew up in Tucson, Arizona. And of course, out there, it's all beautiful hiking mountains, um, you know, caves and all sorts of things. And they were huge into caving and climbing. Mm. So especially spelunking. So she had like all these adventures of going into these caves and doing all this stuff. And it was so, it's so not her. I mean, like (laughs) once that relationship was over, she, she like, I don't think she ever did it again. But I remember being, I don't know, maybe 14 years old 
and she showed me her like pack you know she had like the boots and we have the same size feet so she showed me her boots I remember putting them on and all of her stuff and I was like oh this is so cool like I'm gonna go do this too and one of my Girl Scout camps was a it the theme was like climbing and caving oh and so I got that experience the caving stuff I loved the climbing not so much I'm not really a heights person Mm -mm. no not into that the caving was fun um we had so much fun talking with steven yes he is delightful so steven slater is um a friend of mine wonderful french horn player and currently plays horn with the virginia symphony based in norfolk virginia i really enjoyed hearing his thoughts on a lot of things and it really makes you think about the way we do things here yeah, I think one of the big takeaways to look forward to in the conversation is envisioning what it might look like for new ways of engaging and even hiring the musicians who play in our orchestras. I think that was maybe the biggest sort of thing we circled around and, and really kind of dug into, which I think we'd be curious to know if anyone has opinions about that. Oh my gosh, yes. Write us emails. Or go to our website, violacentric.com, and send us a message about what you think after listening to this conversation. We'd love to hear it. I hope you enjoy this conversation. We had a lot of fun. What are you doing there? Did you have to switch the sides? It's complicated. You don't want to see what's going on right here. (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) I have a Zoom mic on a bell jar. Yes. Yes. (laughs) We are so excited to be talking to my great friend, Stephen Slater. Stephen is a wonderful French horn player and has worked extensively actually on the administrative side of the orchestral world. And so he has just such interesting perspectives all around. Thanks for joining us today. Oh my God, thank you so much for having me. I have to open this up with the age-old question. What is the connection between horn players and viola players? I think it's a big connection. Uh, give me your answers. I feel like it's an inner voice. I mean, anybody who can be at peace with playing offbeats <laughs> the way that violists and horn players can be, there's got to be something there. Yeah. That camaraderie. It's got to be the same kind of people. <laughs> yes. French horn is actually my favorite instrument to listen to, and it's my favorite instrument to tune into in orchestra, often because we're doing similar things. But there's something about the sound, the voicing, that really gets me in my soul. And I feel that way, of course, about viola too. So I think it has something to do with that, like that human register sort of feel. Yeah, maybe it's as close to the human voice as possible mm-hmm. uh, in an orchestral setting. Yeah. And all the beautiful things you said about the French horn, I wish I could say about the viola. <laughs> <laughs> Easy. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I know you tune into the violas during symphonies. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I absolutely love the viola. And I think a lot of that has to do with it too. And in terms of the personality of the musicians playing it, my closest friendships are with my fellow violists and French horn players. I did a late in life graduate performers diploma at Peabody and the horn and viola studios were inseparable. Oh, I love 
that. It was an incredible family. We were always hanging out, always doing things together. And musically, I think we agreed on a lot of things. Incidentally, I don't know if our listeners will know this. I don't think I've talked about it yet. But when I was in high school, I was obviously in the orchestra. I played violin at the time. I was in orchestra. But I really wanted to be in the band. I decided <laughs> I wanted to be in marching band specifically. So I, uh, I learned clarinet so I could be in the marching band. And then as anybody who's been in marching band knows, clarinet is not where it's at. <laughs> <laughs> because nobody can hear you. And it's hard. And so I decided that I wanted to learn French horn. And so I learned French horn and I marched mellophone. Oh my God. Which are two completely different things. But I have so much respect for French horn because I've actually played it. Not well, <laughs> not well, but I played it. And that actually started my foray into the brass instruments. I actually marched tuba at JMU. I marched sousaphone. So it was like my gateway instrument <laughs> into the brass family. I just can't love that story enough. Thank you for sharing it with our listeners. Now they know. <laughs> That's how I met my husband. My husband's a tuba player. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Marching in the band together. Oh, it's so cute. Now, you said it was difficult playing clarinet and marching band, but it was easier playing sousaphone. <laughs> you know what sousaphone parts are like. Well, sure. I just think I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking more about how you're carrying the instrument. Oh, that was a definitely a physical feat, for sure. <laughs> I've thought about that, too, when you share this. I'm like, a little 20-something Stephanie carrying the sousaphone around. <laughs> Impressive. Yeah, it was, well, it was just really for fun. Yes. Anybody who's been in college marching band knows that there's not a whole lot of really intense musicality going on. on the... <laughs> Those are fighting words with some of your <laughs> listeners, I'm sure. Marching band? <laughs> marching band's a big deal. I grew up outside of Atlanta, Georgia, in a very small farm and village called Fairview. And marching band is king. That's what I grew up on. I did not grow up with orchestra until ninth grade when I got into the Atlanta Symphony Youth Orchestra, and I would drive every weekend. Our marching band was awesome. I had an incredible band instructor who also was an accomplished horn player. I love that. So playing in the Atlanta Symphony Youth Orchestra, did you love it at first? 100%. I found recently in a journal that I made in third grade said like what I want to do. So I had one page filled with tennis rackets and all sort of tennis related items. And on the other page, I had a French horn. Now, I don't remember at a young age wanting to play the French horn until later when I realized my parents had one classical record, just one. And on it was Schubert's Unfinished Symphony and Richard Strauss' French Horn Concerto, number one. Oh. I know in fifth grade I wanted to play French Horn, but my band director said it was too difficult. This was the beginning of people telling me how difficult my instrument was. And he said, start on trumpet or trombone, and I decided to pick trumpet. I can't imagine you being a trumpet player. <laughs> I know. Mm -mm. It's crazy. <laughs> well, what's funny is... I had a lot of, I think, natural talent at a young age. So it was fine. It just wasn't really... Didn't fit. Yeah, it didn't match. Yeah, it wasn't you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My junior high band director, Ross Iddings, if you're listening uh, out there, mm. he was unbelievable. And I walked into his room one day and without really thinking about it, I went up to him and just said, I'd really like to play the French horn. And he was like, your parents just bought you a new trumpet. <laughs> 
Yes, they did. Very nice of them. So great. (laughs) (laughs) But I just feel like I really want to play the French horn. And he said, okay, play the French horn today in band class. And if you can play it, you can switch to it. I was like, okay, this is an incredible connection, actually, with Apollo Orchestra that we all have played together with. There's a horn player there named Chris Brown. Yes, yes. Yeah. Hi, Chris Brown. Hey, we went to the same junior high. Oh. And he was the only French horn player. So I go into class and... I grab a French horn from, you know, that was probably hadn't been played in a decade or so. (laughs) And I sit down next to Chris Brown and he's like, what's up? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, so I'm going to try this. And I was like, I have no idea how to play it. I don't even know the fingerings. I don't even know what to do. And he gave me the best advice that probably changed my life. He said, just play the trumpet fingerings. Which is true. You can actually do that in some ways. And that's how I switched to the French horn. So I kind of have Chris Brown to thank for that. Wow. Wow. He was there from the beginning. Yeah. Very good story. Yeah. So ninth grade, I auditioned for the Atlanta Symphony Youth Orchestra and got in. And pretty much the first rehearsal, we did Shostakovich Symphony Number no. 5. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was playing fourth horn, so that was a little better. It was, uh, I think after that first rehearsal, I was like, this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of us probably had very similar experiences of knowing what we wanted to do at a very young age. And in some ways, it's a complete blessing and a complete curse Mm -hmm. because you're so confident and so much in love with what you're doing. You almost want to start training at a college level at a very young age. Yeah, that's a really good point, too, because we decide at such a young age that we want to do this thing. But yet we have such a narrow vision of what that is that then I wonder if that almost sets us up to be slightly disappointed with how difficult it is to do that one thing. And then you think of your whole music career as this very narrow path and achieve this goal. You don't even have the bandwidth to understand that your career can be a lot more than just performing one thing. So we set ourselves up for this very narrow vision of success. Mm -hmm that is very challenging and maybe out of our control to even attain. Yeah, and I think it carries with us maybe for our entire career. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're always looking for the next thing in some ways. That's so true. Mm -hmm. And I've heard a lot of my friends about auditioning and about getting into certain orchestras. Their philosophy in that is never be happy with what you have now. Mm. That's the motivating factor in order to get a, quote, better job, end quote. Yikes. Which is maybe a job that pays more or a job that is more respected in our community. I think it can be super negative. Mm -hmm. If you just step back and look at that, we're being taught to make sure we're not settled in what we're doing. We always have to strive for more. We always have to get better and do better things. It's interesting because to me, it's this idea of not being content with what you have. It's a weird idea for me. And this is a strong statement, but maybe the reason why I'm not as successful as I am. Sorry, not as successful in the eyes of, let's say, the classical music community. Thank you for clarifying Of course, of course. (laughs) I love life. I'm an incredibly social being and I love travel. People talk about their passions and a lot of, I think, classical musicians will say 
number one, their passion is music. For me, my passion is connections and community and friendship and family. Those to me is sort of under the larger umbrella of connections or, or community. I think I saw at a very young age that to be successful in our profession, you have to make so many sacrifices. I, and I understand that. I understand that uh, in sports, too. I'm a, I actually am a tennis player. <laughs> you revived your tennis career in the last year. In the last year, exactly. Thanks, pandemic. <laughs> I know. It was the most perfect social distance sport. So, you know, I think, funny enough, athletics and music are somewhat similar. Totally agree. Inner game. Yes, that's right. Yeah, exactly. And I understand there are a lot of sacrifices that need to be made, but there's a part of me... <laughs> that also wants to live a rich life. And that sometimes contradicts this idea of being a successful classical musician. It's a mindset that I think needs to change for mental health reasons and also the longevity of this profession. It's something that needs to change with education at a very young age. That's huge. We just talked about this with Jennifer and with Tiffany just the time before that there's enough work for everyone. You might just have to change your idea of what you are willing to do. Yes. You know, reframe what success looks like for you. And for you, Stephen, it sounds like you're very successful. Yeah, what what you, what goals you've set for yourself. Mm -hmm. You're playing in a great regional orchestra and you're living out your other interests, which is tennis, being with your family and friends, that sounds like success to me. Mm -hmm. You're doing all the things. Yeah. And that's really your authentic version of success. I think this is fascinating because I can identify with this idea of what I should be doing to be successful in my career and what I'm not like what I could just never bring myself to do, which is sacrifice a lot of the other aspects of my life in order to do it. I was never going to be ever, I'm still not ever going to be the girl who sits in a practice room for six hours a day and isolates myself with my instrument. I just couldn't do it. And I remember this idea that like, that's what I had to do in order to be successful. And I remember feeling all this like shame on top of shame about my ineffectiveness to get better at my instrument. And it's, you know, it's conceptual, right? <laughs> like it's all conceptual. I wonder how many musicians are out there listening to this and thinking, man, I've had a lot of shoulds in my life too. Like my whole career is wrapped up in the way I feel like I should have been and how I could have been better if only I had done X, Y, and Z instead of us embracing that we are multifaceted human beings. And that sure, you're always going to have the Michael Jordans of the world, right? Michael Jordan lived and breathed greatness in basketball. It is all he cared about for his entire career. And that is something that can fill a person up for sure. But I feel like that's the exception and not the rule. I'm curious to know how many people hear this and, and can identify. I would imagine a lot. Yeah. And I think there is space to celebrate that. For example, Michael, I mean, obviously, it is incredible to see someone at the top of our field. It's incredible to hear and to respect it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think we're onto something too with talking about it being good for our mental health, good for our well-being to just get rid of the concept that there's a wrong way to do it because there isn't. Mm -hmm. 
And as Stephanie said, success looks different for everybody. And you've done some amazing things. Yeah, I've done it all almost in a very short amount of time. So can you talk about one of those little paths that you've gone on in a world that Liz and I don't really have that much experience with, which is like the administrative side of orchestras? Yeah. So from 2007 to 2009, I was playing with the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra. Half of my salary in Jerusalem was in U.S. dollars by a foundation called the American Symphony Orchestra Friends of the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra. Kind of a long-winded... It's that acronym. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Too many words. The other half was from the actual Jerusalem Symphony in shekels. The organization had invested all their money with Bernie Madoff. So long story short, I left Jerusalem and moved back home to Atlanta And this was sort of in the middle of a recession, so there were no jobs at all really happening. And a friend of mine, uh, Megan Heinrich, hello, her and I were in a group called Tales and Scales. Megan was the education manager of the Alabama Symphony Orchestra. And she called me and she's like, hey, we have a new position here called artistic coordinator. I always described it as the artist manager away from home. We were sort of representing the orchestra, but we were definitely taking care of all these guest artists. That means soloists, uh, conductors, all those people. So I interviewed, got the job. I think it was between me and a stand-up comic. Really? Which is ironic because I'm funny. (laughs) That's not funny, actually, which is ironic, too. (laughs) That's exactly sort of what the job was. It was taking care of every artist who came in. We're talking transportation, hotels, you name it. And everything that an artist needs to do, I kind of had to take care of in Birmingham. Oh my gosh. What was the craziest writer that you had? (laughs) You don't have to name names. The craziest writers I had. Well, what's funny is I did this very similar job with the Philadelphia Orchestra for a year and a half. And... Uh, unfortunately, arrived into the Philadelphia Orchestra two months before bankruptcy hit. So that was its own sort of beast. But as far as like crazy writers, there really wasn't anything outrageous. There were sometimes there were a lot of things that I had to negotiate. Negotiation was sort of my main job in, in this, which was wild. I think my time in Israel really helped with that because in Israel you negotiate a t-shirt at the gap it really is sort of like that you negotiate everything there oh yeah there is one I won't I won't name the artist but they demanded spelt pretzels (laughs) spelt that's very specific very specific now I got them spelt pretzels it just wasn't the right brand And so the artist manager, here's actually, here's the biggest scoop. (laughs) This is the honest truth. Guest artists, all the stories you hear, I would say 90% of those stories are from their managers. It's not the actual artists. I've heard this. So this was the manager kind of losing their mind and us having to drive through the snow to Whole Foods to get a very specific brand of spelt pretzel. (laughs) It was wild. Meanwhile, when I was there presenting it to the artists, they were like, oh, okay, thanks. That's really nice. (laughs) Like, it was like all for naught. There was no real purpose. A lot of people think that arts administrators need to know everything about how music 
works, but my job was business. It's interesting. I think there's a very strong feeling in arts administration right now. They want to make sure that the next generation of arts administrators are people who were accomplished musicians. I'd rather have somebody who understands business. Mm -hmm. I tend to agree that the idea of encouraging the administrative side of organizations in classical music to be further insulated by only seeking out people with classical music experience will only further isolate us from everything else that's happening in our country and in culture at the at any given time whereas if you have people from all sorts of different backgrounds getting them excited about doing things with classical music then it can bring fresh perspectives and it can it can inspire change. And I don't want to minimize the needs of the musician. And of course, like we are all the musician, we understand. But sometimes I have felt like the musician is this like passive participant in an organization and that the prevailing mentality is that arts admin is responsible for making that organization successful and that we're providing the talent and we're expecting the paycheck because we're providing the talent. And beyond that, it's not our problem. And I don't know, I don't know what we do about that. It seems like a big challenge, but it also seems like something vital that needs to change. So I would love to see an environment where the musicians of an organization have in, an invested interest in making the organization successful. You know what I mean? I do. And you've mentioned this idea of musicians are the talent. And I think that did work at a time and it was sort of the main goal. But yeah, I don't know if it's totally working nowadays. You know, I think we have to step back and see how we function. And the first thing we have to get rid of, which is a very difficult thing to get rid of, is the us versus them mentality. I understand why it's become that way. It's become that way because musicians feel they aren't represented well. And it is true. There is bad leadership. And that is the main issue for me, is a lack of leadership. And that is from both the management side and the musician side. Mm -hmm. The musicians feeling they haven't been cared for. I can understand that. 100%. I do not have the perspective of winning an orchestra job in a full-time position that's supposed to pay me a salary and benefits for the rest of my life, and five years down the road, they announce they're bankrupt and they can't do that. Mm -hmm. Steven, I think we talked about this during the pandemic. Like, What can an organization do if the public is not invested in the product and they're not contributing to it and there's no support? Like Over the last year, there are no audiences. So it's great when you see organizations who have stepped up and figured out ways to give their musicians some work. But also, if there isn't work to be done, there isn't work to be done. And so how do you foster that great leadership, I guess, is the question. And what does great leadership look like? If you don't have a connection with your community, I don't see how it can succeed. Making sure you are visible and making sure you are listening and presenting things that the community wants. You know, one thing I, I really want to mention is that we are artists. I do my own surveys all the time. <laughs> not not for any weird, you know, sick purposes, but, you know, sometimes I'll mention to friends of mine who are classical musicians, I'll say, 
hey, would you ever call yourself an artist? And nine times out of 10, they're like, absolutely not. <laughs> and I'm always very curious by that. This is an artist field. Now, classical music specifically, in my eyes, it's the only art form that doesn't celebrate living artists. If you think about dance, there are always new shows. There are always new choreographers. Mm. The art world is fueled by finding the next great artist. Uh, in theater, you'll see new plays, especially go to Broadway. Even if they're old things, they're done in a new way. And in classical music, we're playing Beethoven 7 on stage in tuxedos and black dresses. And I don't know if the community is going to see that and be like, I identify with that. I don't know if it's working. Now, I understand the tradition of it. I respect the tradition. I love Beethoven. I'm not saying don't play Beethoven. I'm just saying let's celebrate the people who are living now. And if we invest in the people who are living now, let's say living composers, if we invest in new music, that is the first step in investing in our community. Mm -hmm. Because this the community is alive. Yeah. And I think that a lot of arts organizations are starting to do this, seeing a lot more new music on local programs and celebrating living composers and, you know, having them talk about their work before whatever live streamed concert or show. And I think this is starting to, to come about. So hopefully we're on the right track. And as far as dress codes go, I know those are changing. <laughs> I think we're lucky to be in an area where yes. that is definitely starting to happen here. I do see that. I do see new music being brought in. It can happen. Now, some of my best friends are non-musicians. And I'll ask them, I'll be like, hey, do you want to come to this concert? And they're just like, no. no. <laughs> you know, and it's not because they don't support me. Yeah. I'm not saying uh, every concert they're like, no. I just mean if I say, hey, we're doing this concert, we're playing Beethoven 7, and I'm I'm dissing Beethoven. This is not a Beethoven diss. <laughs> yeah, quit. <laughs> I'm not. I'm just. He can take it. Yeah, that's true. Beethoven's a, he's a tough guy. <laughs> he can take it, yeah. Uh, I'm just using it as an example of a piece that is played a lot. A lot. Yeah. And it's a great example because as the orchestra sitting on stage, we freaking love Beethoven 7. For us, it's an invigorating, exciting, amazing experience that we want to have over and over and over again. But And I think for the classical music community that we see pre-pandemic, for those audiences, yeah, they love it. But these audiences are small. And my friends are just not interested. Mm -hmm. And I want my friends to be interested. It's selfish, maybe, you know, but I want to be on stage, not wearing a tuxedo and playing music that celebrates my fellow co-workers. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, I think that audience is still so important. I think that there's a place still for us to wear the tuxedos and black dresses and play Beethoven 7, but it can't be the only product that we're presenting correct it's only a specific portion of our communities that we are paying attention to it's not that there aren't organizations trying to do it Stephen, you make a great point because i have the same experience and actually stephanie probably does too we all have this component of our lives that is sort of entrenched in the non-musician world and there is not a lot of interest <laughs> in what i'm doing among that group of people in my life it's just inaccessible to them. They see me on stage in a tux and they're like, 
This has nothing to do with me. It's just to me about innovating and seeing what we can do to keep this going. Yeah. I'm scared. I'm worried about classical music right now. So we have to have these conversations. Yes, we have to play Beethoven. I love it. We just have to also bring something else to the table. Yeah, so I want to ask you about this. There were some things you shared with me about the hiring process of musicians for an organization. I'm going to actually ask the two of you a question. Do you know of any other profession where the interview process, I'm using air quotes for those listeners, the interview process is done without ever seeing the person, speaking to the person, knowing anything about the person other than sort of one aspect. A temp. <laughs> <laughs> that's very, yes. <laughs> if we're equating our job to a temp, yeah, that's, that's, the bar is not very high. <laughs> yeah. It is weird. It's wild. It's not just, maybe it's not weird. It's wild. <laughs> Going back to these non-musician friends of mine, when I tell them about hiring as musicians in symphony orchestras, they're just like, what are... Yes. They're like, that's not real. That doesn't... Yeah. What? You don't know the person. <laughs> I'm like, correct. <laughs> you do not know the person. <laughs> if you think about that, that's wild. You know, we are hiring someone that we know nothing about personally or professionally, meaning how they interact with other people, how they carry themselves. It just doesn't happen. And the first thing you're going to hear from musicians when somebody says something like I just said, they'll say, well, it's to protect the musician. It's to protect the person from things like sexism, racism. And that is true. That is what was put in place. What we instead need to do is we need to hold organizations accountable for issues like sexism and racism. And we need to make certain and make it clear that those things are not going to be a part of this organization. Like any other organization, like right? Like any other... Like any other company that's going to hire someone, they have to see that person face-to-face -to, -face to talk to them. And they have policies in place to prevent the lack of hiring based on any sort of discrimination. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. That's a really great point. That needs to be put in place, you know? Instead, we are defaulting to something that, in my eyes, doesn't work. Many musicians will say, all we care about is how this person plays. It becomes somewhat toxic to me because that's what we start to feel for a person's entire career. Yes. Yeah, go for it, Stephanie. No, no, I'm like bursting. I'm like, <laughs> I'm having a moment because I just had this epiphany from what you said about how, you know, musicians will say, well, that's the only thing we care about. If that's the only thing that you care about, and that's the only thing you've been preparing for, for your whole musical career is how you play, then that's the impression that you get that that's all you're worth. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. So you get into the orchestra this goes back to what you said, Liz, you play your thing and you think that's where my responsibility ends. What if we had some kind of process where, of course, playing is really important, but maybe there's another round where the final round is you playing, but also them talking to you about what your other interests are, what you have to offer the organization other than the actual physical playing of your instrument. And then the orchestra members would feel more invested in the orchestra and would have something to offer as outreach to a community 
You know, you're not just a person sitting in a seat playing an instrument, but you're an individual. It would like completely change the culture. And it will change it for the better, period. Having this round, like an interview process, it is completely normal to have something like that in a hiring process. When I interviewed for the Philadelphia Orchestra to become their artistic coordinator, I had five interviews probably totaling three or four hours (laughs) over the span of two weeks. It's wild to me that you spent that much time for a job where you basically just took care of guests coming in. By the way, I did a lot more than just take care of guest artists. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, honey. How dare you? Okay, you went to get coffee. Got, wait a second. You got some spelt pretzels. <laughs> okay, God. <laughs> you guys are roasting me. This is a roast. This is the roast of Stephen Slater. You're like, this is not what I signed up for. <laughs> we tease because we love. We'll get back to auditions. One thing I do want to mention is, thank goodness I had hours of interviews for the Philadelphia Orchestra because they were like, oh, this is what he can bring. Yeah. For sure. I'm just highlighting the disparity. I think it's fair to say that you probably weren't making as much as someone who gets hired to play in the Philly Orchestra. I feel comfortable saying this. I was grossly underpaid in arts administrations only for the amount of hours that I was working. I'm sure you were. I was averaging 70 to 75 hours a week of work. Wow. Yeah. And that is what all arts administrators that's normal hours that's something that needs to be known the amount of work that goes into an organization absolutely it ties me back to that disconnect that i hope we start to acknowledge as well that really resonates with me how the musicians have no concept of what you do as an arts administrator Mm -hmm. and i think that really comes across like this whole pandemic i know this is going to be a sore subject for a lot of people but like the met those musicians were not being paid and nobody knew why. Maybe it was just a lack of transparency. Nobody knew what was going on on the other side. And you said it, a lack of transparency. That is the first step. Mm-hmm. It's not easy, but yeah, coming together and having a meeting. We can now do it on Zoom, you know? Because this mentality, this this division, it's just so difficult to start that conversation. And I think having good leadership can start that conversation. By leadership, I'm talking executive director, I'm talking director of artistic administration, I'm talking concert master, music director. It's a lot of people. To me, it seems the most clear in the smaller organizations, right? I think Harrisburg Symphony has this really great established place in the community as a great leadership in their music director who's devoted to making that the case. And I think it's a great example, actually, of how aware musicians can be about what's going on in their organization. I think the the orchestra committee has a great relationship with management there. And I don't know if it's just because it's it's small enough that those pieces can be put together a little more easily. And it does seem to me that the bigger it gets, the bigger the organization gets, there's more disparity in that way. But it has to start from somewhere. I wonder if it can just start from like, if you're just a section member, why can't you just go to your orchestra committee? They're your representation to upper management and just, you know, shoot them an email and say, I for one would really love to have happy hour with the arts administration team. And then they could set something like that up. And then you could go, you could fueled by a little liquid courage, ask whatever question that you have of, of your administration. 
and um, you know, just start that way. Grassroots, man. Any successful company is going to operate the same way. And I say company because I'm talking about something outside of the nonprofit world, but I assume there are nonprofit fields and organizations that are operating in the same way. This idea that to build something great, you want to have the greatest possible team involved in that process. And that starts from the musicians and goes up. So I'm just imagining this scenario where it's not just how you play. Okay, put the blind audition process in, have people go through the rounds, narrow it down to your top five. And then those top five people it's not about playing through your concerto one more time. It's about sitting down with management and with the music director and with your principal and having a conversation about the way you see our world, you know, what's important to you. I think that a lot of committees would say that having an interview process as an alternative to a final round would make their decision a lot easier. Because oftentimes you get to that level, let's say that there's like five people in the finals and they're all, they all can do the job. Just like you were saying, Stephen, like they can all play the notes. Mm -hmm. They're splitting hairs. Mm -hmm. But if they're given that extra information, like this person, they have a history of outreach with the community. They have this to offer. They have that to offer. Then that might give them that extra information to actually make a meaningful decision as opposed to one that's just based on like, the tiniest little accent that you missed or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe from that point down, as part of your training, you learn how to be a more well-rounded professional. You would be encouraged at some point in your life to start thinking about those things as you're training. So it's not just about how great you play the instrument. It's fascinating to think about. I love that. Mm -hmm. And to even have an opinion. Yes. We're revolutionizing the field as we speak. I love this. It's human. We need to bring, I think, something a little bit more human into the audition process and also orchestra. I love that. Your humanity. Like, what is it that makes you you? And then finding ways to utilize your best skills, offering opportunities for you to be more than just a violist or a horn player. If you can utilize the individual skills of every person in that group. Mm -hmm. Changing the world over here. Yeah. Any orchestras listening? We'll consult. Yeah. You know, funny you say that. I haven't been asked to consult in a huge capacity like changing an orchestra. But I have been hired as a, quote, diva wrangler. Oh, my God. I love that. Which is a phrase I learned from my friend Vincent Carbone. Diva wrangler. Yeah. It's a hard topic. And this idea of what can we do to change the face of classical music, it's its huge. Mm-hmm. But I think, unfortunately... I don't feel like it's working the way it is now. And I feel like we need to do something to change it. And the resistance to change to me is like the scariest part of it. This pandemic, I think, has taught us that too. It's an accelerator, really. Some organizations have somewhat thrived in the ways of being more of a public face in whatever communities they're in because now we can use more digital means of, of presenting. Doing more chamber music, that's something I think is awesome, that orchestras, including the Virginia Symphony here, were doing smaller works that we probably wouldn't do otherwise ever. I mean, what an incredible opportunity. I wonder if 
one of the things that musicians can do just I think that there are a lot of us who feel like there's more to it than just getting the job and sitting on stage and playing we can all find ways to be involved even in the jobs that we get hired to do and we're not really in charge like just asking questions or being curious and if you're a member of an orchestra and you are wondering what your organization is doing just like stephanie said ask those questions you know actually reach out to your orchestra committee we get those announcements and rehearsals all the time that's like hey i'm in the orchestra committee if you need anything just let me know what if it was like maybe we need to have sit down and have drinks and meet some representative of the organization on the administrative level like this concept that you can be more involved in the success of your organization than you think you can. Yes, those conversations sometimes happen, but yeah, it needs to be regular. Yeah, just feeling more comfortable in doing it. I would imagine, I think you'll be surprised at how many people are willing to engage in these interesting thoughts and sharing perspectives. Well, hopefully someone will be inspired to take action in their orchestra. Yeah. And hopefully this conversation will have helped them to see how they can be involved and that their input is welcome. I would be curious to know if anybody listening has experience with this, success stories relating to your administration, challenges relating to your administration, or if you've never sort of taken this step in your career and you decide to give it a shot, let us know how it goes. Yeah, tell us below in the comments. Yes, exactly. <laughs> if there are comments. That's not a thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> It'll have to be in, a, in an email format. I've just always wanted to say that phrase. Yeah. I'm going to keep it in there. I love it. Just for you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. It's been amazing. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to the Viola Centric Podcast. If you enjoy what you're hearing and would like to support us, please consider a contribution through the PayPal or Venmo links in our episode notes. Once again, I'm Liz O'Hara Starr. And I'm Stephanie Knutson. We release new episodes every other Monday, so please subscribe so you don't miss one. In the meantime, connect with us on Facebook and on Instagram and email us at violacentric at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>